I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking to Pamela Hartsband, an endocrinologist, and Jerome Groupman, an oncologist, both of whom practice at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston and are professors of medicine at Harvard Medical School. Doctors Hartsband and Groupman have written a perspective article entitled, There's More to Life Than Death, about medical decision-making. In your perspective article, you explore the way we make medical decisions in the face of uncertainty, and you point out that many guidelines are based on mortality statistics, whereas for patients, there may be important quality of life issues to be weighed and considered as well. Those kinds of considerations seem to be at the center of the current movement toward patient-centered outcomes research, patient-centered care, and shared decision-making. Do you then see promise in that movement? Well, of course, um, we feel that uh, looking at the um, shared decision-making, patient-centered care is an incredibly important dimension of medicine that is only just beginning to be explored in any depth. What we see is that medicine is increasingly perceived by both doctors and patients to be filled with areas of controversy, not just the kind of controversy that we talk about in the piece with mammograms and uh, PSA cancer screening, but also other areas like vitamin D supplementation, statin treatment for patients with high cholesterol for prevention. So so we see a real need for um, looking at what's right for the individual. The, the complexity is that um researchers, particularly cognitive scientists like Daniel Kahneman and an MD cognitive psychologist, uh, Peter Ubel, have taken a crack at this in the past. And it's incredibly difficult to figure out what the quality of life is for an individual. There are all sorts of cognitive barriers and traps. For example, Kahneman has shown that the person will tell you globally about his life based on how he feels at that moment. And 15 minutes later, he may feel differently or how the question is framed to him and so on. So um, it's very important, but it's not simple or direct. In terms of patient-centered outcomes research, do you foresee a time when there are going to be more appropriate data to use in decision-making than the current mortality data? What sorts of outcomes do you want to see studied? Well, we think it's a very important uh, outcome, certainly beyond life and death, um, function, how a person is functioning, which is somewhat objective, but also the subjective domain, how that person feels about the outcome. And this um, is very important with regard to a person's sense that the process they went through to make the choice um, was a solid one, a sound one. Because otherwise, particularly if the outcome is not good, they're filled with regret. And that is a very, very heavy burden. So we think that some of the outcomes are objective. How far can you walk with arthritis and so on? Uh, But some of them are subjective, like regret. And the other problem is that, for example, what a number means to you is different than what a number means to me. So if you say your pain is six out of a scale of 10, six doesn't mean anything to me. 
my six is not necessarily your six. So there are real challenges in terms of defining outcomes, um, which may seem rather simple, like how much discomfort or pain you have after an orthopedic procedure. And another area we wanted to look at is how satisfied people feel with their choices after the choice has been made. Uh, The flip side, I guess, of regret when you're not satisfied. And one of the things that we found is that People, two people can have the very same outcome in terms of objective things and have very different point of view with regard to how satisfied or how much they regret. You focus your article largely on cancer screening, where the life and death payoff may be far down the road, but there may be immediate effects on quality of life in the treatments. How do you think decisions about screening should be made? We think that decisions about screening, and in fact about treatment too, should be based on your individual valuing of risk and benefit. And one of the things that we encountered in our field research were um, common threads in how people do this, their mindsets basically. And we talk about this in our book. So we talk about people who are minimalists, who believe less is more, a very fashionable point of view right now given the economic environment, and the maximalists who want to have the uh, latest cutting edge treatment and, and do everything that they can and more. And then we have the people who have a naturalism orientation who favor so-called natural means of treatment, supplements, uh, herbal therapies, massage, and so on. And those people who have a technology orientation and want the latest, greatest breakthrough. And then we have what we call believers and doubters. The believers who, once they find uh, a treatment that they think is appropriate or or a screening test that they think is appropriate, they're ready to go ahead. They're not worried about the consequences. And the doubters who are always worried that maybe whatever they decide will make matters worse than it was in the beginning. And when people view something like a screening test, I think they segregate out very much along these lines so that the minimalist um, doesn't want to be screened, neither does the doubter, and uh, probably those with naturalism bias are also less likely to want a screening test. And on the other hand, those who are the maximalists and believers in technology orientation want the screening test. They want the information. So I want to ask, you've answered this in part already, but would you use the same approach to treatment decisions or would the approach change once you had a diagnosis for the patient? Well, um, I think the starting point um, is the same in terms of understanding your philosophy or your mindset with regard to these categories. But then it can change very much because you're faced with a diagnosis and you need to shift occasionally away from your starting point and take into account the information. For example, um, let's say you were screened with PSA and you come up with a Gleason 5, which is a rather indolent sort of um, uh, pathological diagnosis of prostate cancer. That's very different than having a Gleason 8 or 9 in terms of what the projected trajectory is to have spread and metastases and so on. So someone who is a minimalist and a doubter who did have the test 
may need to shift his uh, thinking to accommodate a Gleason 8 or 9 and find that being a minimalist and a doubter probably is not the most prudent uh, approach. He may still want to keep it, but he may need to shift. So once you have your diagnosis and you're choosing treatments, you may move along the scale away from your original point. In your book, the, the title of which is Your Medical Mind, you offer a framework for helping people understand what their own inclinations and beliefs are regarding medical care so that being more informed, they'll be able to face medical decisions more easily. But in your perspective article, you point out that patients can't really imagine accurately what their lives will be like with a given condition or with given treatment complications. How do you help patients weigh what they know and what they don't know about themselves when they're making these decisions? I think people deal with um, making these decisions in different ways, starting with their mindsets, but then moving on. So some people are very much helped by looking at lots of data, lots of numbers, lots of statistics, population studies, and, and that's really helpful to them. Other people take a different point of view. They look for what we call, or what has been called, neighborly advice. They look for somebody who's been there, who's had been in the same situation as they're about to face, and they try to find somebody who is like them and see if that information is helpful. And this approach has been validated by some pretty um, high-level articles and, and professors at Harvard. Dr. Gilbert published this in Science and called it the surprising power of neighborly advice. So it's interesting because Gilbert's studies and others um, uh, push away a bit from the general dismissal of anecdotes and stories. You're supposed to be evidence-based, numbers-based, and data-based, and so on. But um, there is uh, no way to get a concrete, palpable sense of what it's like, potentially, for you to live with a medical condition by looking at a number. So we said before, if you say your pain is 6 out of 10, or you say your erectile dysfunction is a 1 out of 3, that doesn't mean anything. But by talking to someone who is similar to you in sensibility and whom you can connect with, you get a better sense of what your life may be like. But this is, is a conundrum, and I, I believe it probably goes back to the time of the earliest thinkers and philosophers, that it is, you know, as Mark Twain said, it's very hard to prognosticate particularly about the future. I, I would imagine that another part of the conundrum is in this what is essentially shared decision-making that you're describing, it potentially is extremely time-consuming. So what would have to change in the American healthcare system to make this kind of approach possible? Well, I think time spent, physician and patient time together, is probably the most undervalued component of our healthcare system right now. And um, that has to change. There has to be an appreciation that it takes time to make important decisions about your health and that the time spent with a patient is not inefficient, it, it has value. Uh, there's also, um, uh, people don't make the decision necessarily the first time they hear the information or the choices because we're often operating in a gray zone. There is no black or white one answer for everyone. And that may require a repeat visit, which again, is very undervalued. 
and takes more than 12 minutes while the doctor is sitting in front of the computer screen checking off boxes about bike helmets and uh, seat belts. So um, there's a lot of lip service given to patient preferences, patient values. The Institute of Medicine says that informed patient decision-making and the uh, choices guided by the values of the individual patient is the pinnacle of quality. But there hasn't been a single metric from CMS, from the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services in a decade, and this was another perspective piece in the New England Journal, that's responsive to patient preferences. Not a single one. So uh, we hope that with patient-centered research and other attention to this, that there will be seriousness uh, given to this key dimension of choice. Has studying and writing about these issues changed the way you practice? Definitely. I think that not only has it changed the way we function as doctors and how we um, try to elicit these type of preferences and mindsets from patients, but it's also changed our understanding of how we made our own choices, and um, that's been very illuminating. Yeah, I think we don't realize that doctors, and quote, experts, have these biases and mindsets of maximalist, minimalist, believer-doubter, and so on. And as Pam said earlier, um, this incredible controversy about almost everything, the PSA screening or mammogram screening, vitamin D, statins, on and on and on. And, and you, all of these experts are looking at the same data, the same information. So why did they come up with different guidelines? And it's because they have a very heavy subjective overlay. And that has helped us, I think, understand in, in speaking with patients and trying to help patients that when we understand our own mindset, we don't immediately project it onto the patient as being the right choice for him or her. And uh, a study we found from the University of Michigan showed that in at least two-thirds of common medical conditions, there's almost no effort to elicit patient preference before the physician puts out what he thinks is, quote, best for that individual. Thank you, Dr. Hartsband, Dr. Groupman.